This is What's Ahead, and I'm Steve Forbes. Today's episode is brought to you by U.S. Bank. U.S. Bank believes that hard work works, and for everyone working toward a goal, U.S. Bank is here to help. And if you would, please rate, review, and subscribe to the show. Looking at what's ahead for this week, I think there's going to be more and more attention paid to who is going to take vacancies at the Federal Reserve Board. President Trump has made two nominations, Steve Moore and Herman Cain, and both have come under withering fire. People say, well, they're not Ph.D. economists. Well, when you think about it, neither was Adam Smith. Neither was Ricardo, famous economist. John Stuart Mill, who wrote great things in the 19th century about economics. He didn't have a Ph.D. either. Nor, for that matter, does the chairman of the Federal Reserve, Jerome Powell. The real rap on these two individuals is the fact they're not part of the club. They have different beliefs about the proper role of the Federal Reserve, and the Fed is like any other organization. It's become inward-looking, insular in its thinking, in a bubble. Joseph Schumpeter, the great economist, once said, if you want to get things done, you have to ask the right questions. Steve Moore and Herman Cain, if they do go to the Fed, and I think at least one of them will, if they do go to the Fed, they're not going to be able to change it or run it, but they can begin to get changed by asking the right questions. Here's a big one. Why does the Fed believe that prosperity causes inflation? Why do they believe if more and more people are working and wages are going up, they have to slow the economy down? They believe the economy is like a machine, that it can overheat. Well, the economy is made up not of machines, but of individuals. 300 million in this country, 7 billion around the world. And ask yourself this question. If your income is going up, do you feel you're overheating? Do you start sweating? Do you say, take that money away? I I can't stand the heat. Of course not. You're happy. Your income is going up. That's good for everybody. But the Fed has this view of something called, and if you want to impress people at a cocktail party, mention the Phillips curve and say, this is not a baseball pitch. This is an economic theory. And the theory says that if you have low unemployment, you have to have high inflation. And if you want low inflation, you have to accept high unemployment. There are at least seven Nobel Prize winning economists who say this theory is absolute nonsense. And experience is showing us that today. Low unemployment, low inflation. Nonetheless, the Fed still worships the Phillips curve. So Steve Moore and Herman Cain should be put on that board of governors of the Federal Reserve and start asking the hard questions that this insular institution needs. Remember, the Fed is not a fourth branch of government that should be worshipped. It's not mentioned in the Constitution. It's a creature of Congress and should be held accountable for its actions and certainly questioned about how it operates and how it affects the economy. And here's my read of the week. It's an essay by Robert Royal in a publication called The Claremont Review. The article is entitled, Is the Pope Catholic? You can find it online, claremont.org slash crb. And what this essay gets to is why so far the papacy of Francis has disappointed church reformers. The article points out that there are two major issues the church has to face. One, of course, is the abuse of priests against minor children. Scandalous, horrible. 
but the church has been agonizingly slow in responding effectively to it. People expected that when Pope Francis came into the papacy, he would push major reform, root out the corruptors. But amazingly, he's been slow. And this article says he's got to change that. Otherwise, the authority of the church could ultimately be undermined long term. Another thing Francis has not done that reformers thought he would do is reform the church's tangled, messy, and often corrupt finances. So far, he's made no real moves in that area either. So take a look at that essay. If you're a Catholic, you're certainly going to be interested in it. But even if you're not, you always want to see an institution, a powerful institution, an institution of moral authority, get its act straightened out. And now, Joanna and Chip Gaines. I spoke with the Gaines just before they announced the launch of their new television network. So our conversation serves to give insight into the always adventurous, never easy path of these former small-town entrepreneurs, now big-time media mavericks. And what you'll see in this conversation is, despite their success, they're still personable, friendly, always looking for new things, trying to find beauty where others see only problems. People find that engaging. So do I. Thank you, uh, Chip and Joanna. Peter Drucker, late great management guru from Austria, died in his 90s. Books are still read in some business schools today. Hmm. Once said, every organization, whether profit, nonprofit, government, whatever, should always ask itself, what is your mission? What is your purpose? What is it you are trying to do? And if you do that, you're going to get less hung up if circumstances change, if the tools change. Certainly in the print industry, we went through that. Sure. So how would you describe the mission purpose of what you are doing today? That's a good question. You better have come uh, <laughs> yeah, you're uh, ready really to rock. Make, yeah. what, do you, what do you think? I feel like you're more equipped yeah. to answer that. What do you think? So I think for us, you know, with, with the, the line of business that we do, whether it be retail or even the renovation, we love finding beauty and celebrating that. And whether that be at the store, at the silos, or in the magazine, creating these authentic moments, I think, for people where uh, we can dig in and we always say unearthing beauty in places that you wouldn't typically find it. When we think about what we do with our houses, you know, a lot of the houses that we're drawn to the most are the ones that people are scared of. I think what we love and what we see in them is something that we get excited about, finding that beauty and making it come alive again. You uh, made a decision, and we'll talk about it a little later, uh, several major decisions in your life that would have mm -hmm. struck people. Why did they do that? Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, life is never a straight line, mm -hmm. and uh, people can get discouraged and not realize that's just a chapter. It's not the whole book. Right. Sure. Uh, Joanne, when you grew up, you had something of an entrepreneurial bent uh, with your sisters, I think, and stores <laughs> and the like. Yes. Even you, as a kid, very poignant in the, your book where you describe how it was in the second grade, boys started to uh, bully you mm -hmm. about your background. Mm -hmm. It hurt for a while, but describe how you overcame that and realized yeah. that, no, this is something to be proud right. of, mm. not ashamed and of. And that was a long process. I think, you know, my mom was full Korean, and I didn't realize she was really different until her mother came from Korea to live with us. All of a sudden, you know, they're coming to all our school events, and these boys would make fun of me, and I remember going home and not knowing how to process it with my mom because she was Korean, so I didn't sure. want to hurt her feelings. 
when you're that young and you're... It's hard to put things in perspective. Yes. Um, and so I would think of ways to not go to school. I would try to make myself sick at night. Like I remember doing jumping jacks <laughs> instead of sleeping. I mean, maybe this will make me... Just ways to avoid it. And then finally, I, I kind of grew out of it. You know, you get your friends and... So I kind of buried that, and I think when when I was in college is when I started really realizing, man, being different is actually a good thing. I took three years of Korean in college, mm. and now I can read Korean. I can say it. Don't really Jeez. understand it, but I can write. <laughs> but you can do Korean better than he can do Spanish. That's For a fact. Sure. That For is sure. a fact. I embrace. I love. I love the food. I love the yeah. culture. I want to take my mom to Korea. I want to go back to her homeland and really, you know, just kind of the years that were lost where I ignored it, I want to in some way um, honor that and honor my mom. And I'm telling you to kind of echo some of those thoughts, Steve, it's like I was the recipient of that amazing internal resolve that I think that that mm -hmm. created in you. And I, I know that, you know, as a young woman, when we met, you know, mm -hmm. that you could really feel that inner strength that mm -hmm. she had. She's not real outgoing. I've always been a little bit the life of the party, but boy, you could feel that strength that she had developed over all those years. And uh, you ended up uh, doing TV commercials for your yes. uh, father at the Firestone dealership. <laughs> That's when I first fell in love. I was literally <laughs> just in a uh, uh, dormitory here in Waco, Texas, watching her do uh, sell Firestone tires. And I was like, hey, that girl, who is uh, this? That was fun. I remember I would, I would do voiceovers at first. I would do these 30-second like radio commercials, and I loved it. I'd do my little radio voice, um, and I'd nail it every time, 30 seconds. And wow. then my dad was like, why don't you Can you that? remember one? Can you reenact it? No, I just remember Jerry, Jerry Stevens Firestone, home of the satisfied customers. Oh, and I'm like, right. <laughs> now when I nice. hear it, I'm like, Dad, we should have like hired someone to write our commercials. They were so cheesy. But I'd have to say stuff like P two thirty five fifty six, like all these size tires. I yes. mean, my dad taught me how to rotate and balance tires. To how, and I remember, you know, men would come to the counter and they'd see me and they'd go, I need to buy a set of tires. Can I talk to somebody? And I'm like, I'm the I'm the girl. I'm the one that can. So good, I loved it. I I loved uh, proving them wrong and saying, hey, I'll sell you a set of tires, so sold chips so, and brakes. Uh, that's so, right. Oh, wow. <laughs> so you go to go to New York, uh, you want to do TV, doesn't work, mm, yeah. but as your life, both of your lives unfold, you discovered something else, mm -hmm. New York's distinct boutiques yes. and design. W yeah. Walk us yeah. through that uh, sort of new world you discovered. Yeah. You know, I was never a risk taker ever. Like, I, you know, the idea of stepping out into something unknown was just not my deal. I think I was 18. No, no, I was like 21, 20 or 21. I was senior in college. Moved to this big city. I was a homebody. I loved being home with my family, friends, just the comfort of that. And I was working in broadcast journalism, CBS, and I realized, you know, I thought that was going to be the thing. I was going to move there and then stay there forever and just get into broadcast journalism. Well, while I was there, I remember calling my parents every night saying, I want to I want to come home. I'm done. I miss home. And thankfully, my parents said, Joe, you're going to stick this out. You're mm -hmm. not coming home. We want you to finish this. So I remember on the weekends, I would go to little, ta like, little towns like Soho, and I would find these amazing little boutiques mm -hmm. that when I walked in and I heard the music and I could smell the candle, mm -hmm. it felt like home. Sure. And when I was in there, I felt safe. I felt known. And so, you know, I was there for five or six months, and when I moved back, there was something in me that was like, I want to I wanna do that for people here in Waco. Like when they come into the shop that they experience something. You know, whether it be the smell of the candle or the sound of the music or fresh flowers, that it be something that inspired them. But on the other side of that, 
I was a daddy's girl, and I always promised my dad I was going to take over the Firestone. But there was something about those boutiques that really spoke to me that I thought that's where I could see myself getting really excited about something. It's interesting what you said about your father, because uh, Chip, when you were growing up, no one would ever call you uh, a lover of authority. <laughs> and, uh, but uh, you were always doing a lot of things, but sure. your total passion, as you put it, uh, mm. center of your universe was baseball. Mm. That was how you related to your father sure. Mm. in every way. If the game didn't go well, you mm. felt it from him. Sure. And uh, then describe how you got to college, mm. and like you with Firestone or the TV career, suddenly your life passion suddenly hits the wall. Mm. It's it's really sad. I try not to think real deep about it, even as a 44 year old, you know, middle aged uh, adult. Because I, I even as you described it, it's like I remember it like it was yesterday. Uh, I was always the kid whose name was listed in those top four or five spots. And here you had 30 or so spots on this name. And I mean, you know, as I'm looking through this list of names, where's my name? Where's my name? And it wasn't on there. And I just a, remember. A new coach had come. Yeah, new coach had come. And he wanted to do things differently. It was cut just a bunch of you. Exactly. It was like overnight, you know, and I had never been a part of anything like that either. You know, I mean, just about every uh, team that I'd been on prior to this experience was a lot more like, boy, you grew up with these people. I mean, they knew you from little league to middle school to junior high to high school and and you were kind of like uh, your reputation had preceded you to some extent well here all of we were and we'd all been recruited by this guy who had just retired boy within a week or two he was rearranging things long story short it didn't take long for me to realize that my name was not on that list and boy for 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 that to happen for the first time probably right at 20 and I mean for the first time to ever really fail in a way like that and the ones that didn't get their name called kind of clicked up and we're just like what are we going to do what's the next step and within a month or two I just had this real peace like you know this isn't this isn't something that I want to chase around the country I want to settle down I want to become a real student I want to become well I shouldn't say real student but a typical student I should say and uh, so I did just that and it took about a year I mean I would almost argue you know I'm not a real uh, depressed type personality so I don't really struggle in that way but if, if I were ever depressed in my whole life it was definitely that you know, that junior year of college and somehow I became passionate about basically small business. I mean, it wasn't like I was developing Facebook like Mark Zuckerberg. I mean, I was mowing people's grass and well, trimming it, it, people's just hedges. Just quick, quickly describe because sure. these events in life can take on such significance. Watching sure. somebody mow the lawn. Mm. Yeah. And that was me. I mean, I'd sit in these uh, classrooms and I would, you know, I was this kid that just had like an a, a, a attention span of a squirrel and I'd be watching outside the window. This guy's mowing grass and I literally recall thinking almost out loud. I mean, I think I almost whispered it to myself. I would give my right arm to trade places with that guy. You know, after a few of those events, just watching these guys mowing the grass, I just got in my car and tailed this poor guy all the way back to his shop and uh, got out and talked to the owner of this lawn company. He told me no the first time and the second time and about eight times later he finally kind of gave me a chance and next thing you know you, I fell uh, in love with the lawn business. You, you had a couple of sayings which uh, I think everyone should remember. You say view failure as a teacher not an enemy. Yeah of course. Mm -hmm. And uh, winning and losing isn't an event it's a mindset. Mm -hmm. Amen. Yeah. Now describe that. I said all that? 
You're, you're Man, a genius. Wait, the way you say it, it gave me the chills. It sounds like something you would have said. Maybe I got that from you. I, no. it, like, it looks like I paraphrased uh, something I no, probably read uh, from uh, Steve uh, Forbes uh, down the line. Said, wow, this guy gets it. So uh, the baseball thing was one of your life-shaping events. Sure. But another one was the Mexican trip. Not yep. just for the comedy of it, but realizing what you do has consequences mm -hmm. with other people. Mm -hmm. uh, describe first the trip and then uh, what how, how it shaped you as a, as a really serious entrepreneur. Yeah, I think that that's where, where things really changed for me. I mean, I, I went from being a boy to a man, if you want to say it in that way. I've always had a bit of a Peter Pan complex, and I think Joe struggled with that even later than the time I'm referring to here in my 20s. But something about that Peter Pan syndrome, to your point, I just thought I was invincible. I thought my actions didn't affect anybody else. I could do whatever I wanted. And and here I had three or four businesses that we were juggling. They were all run on just shoestring budgets. I mean, if, if something, and I, would, I had them all cross-collateralized for a lack of a better word but just very intermingled mm -hmm. and so if I was short a thousand bucks in this business I'd get it from this business and switch it and so I just kind of in this wily creative but inappropriate way I had all this stuff sort of managed I had it all uh, taken care of well unbeknownst to me as I asked my beautiful girlfriend future fiance and then wife to kind of manage this thing for me while I took this three-month vacation to go learn Spanish I didn't realize how complicated that request was her dad man I'm telling you he's a very um, well, I did the books for my dad for yeah. 10 years at the Firestone. Okay. So I said, leave me a checkbook. I, I know how to, I, I mean, I this. pay all the bills there. I can, I can easily do this. So I was so excited oh, to just gosh. help him. So but, I brought it. you have to have money in the bank. Well, there you and go. I, I thought he was rich. So I was like, oh, I think you can just sign this check. And, you know, I didn't realize that on the other side of it was no money. So I'm in the office. I've got all the chip stuff here and all my dad's stuff. My dad starts getting calls from these contractors, from... And he's answering the phone. What are the chances? My dad's answering the phone. And they're like, is there a Chip Gaines that's there? You know, and he literally pulls me aside. He's like, what is this guy doing? And I'm like, what do you mean what's this guy doing? So now people start showing up to the Firestone. And he sees his little daughter back there going, do not talk to, I mean, and these are some rough guys that were coming <laughs> demanding payment because the, the check didn't go through. So I was writing all these checks, sending them off. So my dad was mad. And then I was upset because I was like, well, I didn't, what you know I realized okay he does have three businesses and there's one checking account and I started I started putting some stuff together and then I, I just remember calling him imagining him on the beach with you know a margarita or something he was actually taking Spanish classes I was, in, I was fairly responsible was you wouldn't have believed it I was in class I mean for the first time these learning. things started clicking <laughs> but I just realized you know you uh -oh. couldn't have your cake and eat it too you know I mean I literally thought for the first time I'm actually enjoying class I think mm -hmm. I can figure this Spanish thing out honestly as I look back on it as at 44 it really is one of my big regrets that I wasn't able to figure mm -hmm. out how to do both of them but but the thing I don't regret is that I did the right thing. I packed up. I left far too early. You know, I learned maybe 12 words of Spanish or something. <laughs> but those 12 are very fluent. It was a maturing experience, but also in an uplifting way, you were treated like the prodigal son yeah, when you came back. absolutely. People may not realize when you came back, your, your father had been humiliated by sure. people coming for checks. You were embarrassed. Mm -hmm. What did this mm -hmm. guy leave me? Yeah. And uh, you're expecting to get your head beat in when you knocked on the door at midnight. Mm. Mm. And Poor they fact. saw you and they realized 
he'd made a mistake. He's not a bad mm. guy. Mm. Amen. And it was. It was like 12 o'clock. And I mean, I did. I looked rough. I don't know that I... slept in maybe two or three days. I remembered my eyes. I remembered my hair. I remember I had a beard. I mean, I looked like I had been through the ringer. And I think somehow, literally by the grace of God, the Stevens clan kind of saw me and thought, to your point, mm. you know, I, I don't think this was as uh, egregious as it, as it appeared yeah. on the surface. You know, it was a real immature way to run those businesses. And it hit me like a ton of bricks. Amazingly about both of you, and we'll get into a little more detail, is that in all of this, you learned on your own. Mm. You didn't have mm -hmm. a how-to book. Mm -hmm. sure. you, you, you learned it on your own, which is not an easy thing. So uh, you're in the, the business of uh, fixing up houses, flipping them. Love the story when you came back from your honeymoon. And then, uh, Joanna, you do the store mm -hmm. with, again, on paper. What is she? Uh, she did the books for her dad. Right. Uh, yeah, she likes candles, but uh, what, 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 what does she know? And you had faith in her. Mm -hmm. sure. Describe, walk us through how you made the decision yeah. to uh, take the plunge, not just daydream about it, but right. take the plunge. So that year was my almost 10th year working for my dad, and this was that pivotal. I had, while I was working for my dad, I'd always, when I was just had some downtime, I would sketch on paper some business ideas. I thought being a business owner, there was this freedom, and you know, I, I thought, oh, I wanna have that. Like, I wanna, I wanna be an entrepreneur. And you know, later I learned there's a difference between an entrepreneur and, and a business and a business. Yes, like right. there's two different deals. But I sketched out these ideas, and we're just about to get married, and Chip had said, hey, Joe, we gotta think about this. What are we gonna do? And we both contemplated, like, do we take over this Firestone? Like, do we do this together? Um, and that was one of our big decisions. And I just remember my gut was, I don't want to do this for the rest. This is my dad's dream, mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. but it's not mine. And and I had to have the conversation with my father and basically say, thank you for what you've taught me these last 10 years. That was, to me, the sweetest time I've ever had with my father. Mm. We connected in ways. But Chip said, I want to know what businesses you want to start. So I, I laid them all out on paper. One was a bakery, one was a spa, and one was a retail store like I'd seen in New York City, and Chip said, well, why wouldn't you do any of these? And I said, well, because I don't want to fail. I didn't realize that, as Chip would say, well, if you fail, well, we'll just try something else, Joe. And I was like, well, you make that sound so easy. In my mind, it was like the end all, like you're done. Um, and I think when Chip kind of encouraged me in a way to see failure as a tool, not as the end, this is something I can put in my back pocket, and for the next time, if I don't make it, I'll know better what not to do or what to do you know, on the next run. So I think I felt empowered, I was excited. And so in that moment I said, I'm gonna go tell my dad and we're gonna start the shop. And my dad was my biggest cheerleader. He, he was, yeah. He was the one that said, Joe, whatever I need to do to encourage you to do this, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be behind you. And he Like was, that day he surprised me with the way he responded from me Mexico, coming back to Mexico. Yeah. He really, I think he yeah. surprised you a little bit and that he didn't hold any grudge. He almost instantly right. changed the page and moved on to the and next. And I had zero experience with decorating. I had zero experience with even like the can, I, did, I had no clue. I knew tires for 10 years. Oh, I knew what a tire <laughs> smelled like and I loved it. But, I, you know, so my dad helped me kind of get my wiggles out. I remember I would go buy these things in garage sales and I'd say, hey, dad, can I sell this stuff in your showroom? Like when people and customers were waiting for their cars to be worked on, he'd let me put these little trinkets on the coffee table with a price tag with my name on it. And he'd give me the cash at the end of the day. Well, there's some things that were really funny because some things weren't selling. And like the sleigh. 
like to say. And he, I mean, it took three weeks. And I remember Sweet. showing up every day going, wait, maybe I shouldn't do this. I can't even sell one $25 item. I shouldn't be doing a store. But my sweet dad ended up, you know, later I realized he had bought it. But that was the one thing I needed to say, hey, I can do this. So uh, you go ahead and you're doing the store. Doing the store. You're uh, going uh, full-blown on fixing places up. This is way before TV. Sure. Selling them. Mm-hmm. Never had a real home. Always preparing for, 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 for the next thing. <laughs> right. And then you do something that seemed very logical. Instead of having all these projects all over the place, why not bring it all together in mm. one big development, mm. uh, save money, save time traveling? You bet. And uh, you went mm. ahead with it. You got yeah. the, the bank uh, loans lined up, lines of credit lined up, mm-hmm. and then you ended up facing the abyss. Mm. Walk us through that, because entrepreneur, people who want to be entrepreneurs need to know, even if you think you're doing everything right, sure. circumstances, yeah. be prepared, mm-hmm. you can get that curveball. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I really, I, I remember it like it was yesterday, but I mean, the bank called and said, Chip, listen, you sitting down, you all right? And I said, well, I don't know, what, what, what's up? And he said, well, you know, we've, we've talked about this amount of money for this development. And I mean, we had spent at that point roughly 50% of it. Mm-hmm. And, he, and I said, all right, so what's the deal? And he said, man, uh, you know, basically these regulators have come in and told us that we had to decrease this line of credit that we've agreed to by 50%. And so as, as that sunk in, I realized we have 50% of this line of credit spent. It's in the dirt. It's, I mean, streets, curbs, and gutters. This thing was taking shape in a real positive way. But here we get a phone call that, hey, you've got another $400,000 that you're going to have to, you know, come up with on your own. And boy, I mean, neither of our parents had that kind of money. Uh, we certainly didn't have that kind of money. So you want to talk about a scramble that, that, ensued almost immediately. I mean, when we got that phone call, within a matter of hours, I had set up a few phone a few phone calls and a few essentially cold calls with just folks that I knew might have the opportunity to help us out with this kind of a situation. And next thing you know, I became like a fundraiser. It was like a hard two years. Oh, it was literally really house by house. Like if we could just sell one lot, yeah. get, I mean, it was, it was not what in our minds would be, we're going to sell, this is a no-brainer concept. These are, you know, $130,000 homes. People are retiring. They're going to want to live in this community. We just, it, it seemed on paper so, but then when you don't have the funding and you can't advertise, there's so many things that we were hamstring by. And then you have the by. psychology. If people don't see others. Exactly. That was the thing. Oh you my. had like exactly. one house on one corner and people were terrified. Well, sure. why, why is it going yeah. slow? Yeah. Why, I mean. And I'm telling you, when the paper called, they said, hey, I heard about this development. You know, and I'm sitting there going, I was almost insecure, like, mm-hmm. oh, shoot, they've heard the, the rumor <laughs> that, uh, that I didn't, that my line of credit has been reduced by half and this and that. And he said, man, I really want to do a story about this development. I was like, all right, that sounds great. And boy, when that mm-hmm. thing hit the paper, we had a few phone calls, starting with uh, Dale Williams was our first phone call. He said, hey, I, my mom's needing to, you know, downsize. She wants this house. Go ahead and get her started. Let's make this happen. And so, I literally was like, what? This, this gets to the intangibles. Okay. How did you get through this when you knew any day you oh. could uh, be be yeah. broke. So all things being equal, I think some of that stuff I learned in Mexico and in those robbing Peter to pay Paul and learning how to juggle and doing those complicated things that I think I was doing in an immature, irresponsible way. I think as a young adult with some moxie and some responsibility and all these things, I thought, you know, I've been here before. You know, let's figure out how to how to get out of this one. And uh, uh, again, by the grace of God, boy, some people came through at just the eleventh hour.
people picked up on this just wasn't a development. This this mm-hmm. this was unique. Sure. Uh, talking about big decisions, the store, yeah. it succeeds. Then you make the decision to shut it down. Yeah. The way we, we, we kind of ebb and flow with life is just these gut instincts and just kind of being in tune to what we feel like is right for our family. And sometimes those decisions, you, you think, is this right? Or is this, you know, you mm-hmm. hear everyone say, no, 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 you need to stay doing this. And I think for me, I was now, I had two babies. These two little babies were, you know, requiring a lot of attention. And, but now I see this dream unfold. I'm finally starting to get the retail thing. I'm loving the whole yeah. go to market and figure out what your customers want. You were also learning. I was learning. Sure. like going to school at it, the same it was, time. It Absolutely. was this fascinating yeah. thing. Every customer that came in taught me something. They taught me business. I think I finally started getting in my groove, but then there was something tugging on my heart saying, I need you to step back for a second and really focus on family and focus on home and support Chip with what he's about to move into. So that was a hard that was a hard decision, but mm-hmm. I think the second I made up my mind, I was just, there was no Pretty looking resolved. back. It was yeah. just, that was a great season. And I remember there was something in me uh, that just said, hey, you know, this right now is gonna hurt, but you wait, it'll come back. You have uh, been uh, accused sometimes of doing things impulsively. <laughs> I don't know what? where that comes from. What? <laughs> <I'm not Jeb. laughs> but but uh, two things happened at the same time. You described how you saw this uh, ad. You're, you needed a place for six months. Why not a houseboat? Bought it sight unseen. Sure. At the same time, a call comes from, I guess, your uh, posting. Production company. Yeah, hi Production yeah. company. <laughs> after initially thinking scam time, put up $10,000, we will make you famous. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Uh, I was like, uh-huh. Uh, uh, you, you got over that. But, uh, <laughs> but, but describe how what you did that ended up this seeming disaster leading sure. to uh, mm. fixer-upper. Uh, absolutely. One of those mm. things you have to allow in life. Almost the story of our life is this is this yin and yang or this mm-hmm. half-perfect thing and half-imperfect thing collide and, and something even more interesting pops out of it. But, but yeah, so we had just bought the farm. So basically we're thinking, how are we gonna, uh, where are we gonna live here for the six months that it's gonna take us to renovate this farmhouse? And I thought, man, that'd be so much fun to live on a houseboat for about six months. And she was like, you're crazy. Neither of our kids could even swim at that point. They were tiny. Um, at about the same time, the production company called. And uh, uh, sorry, I'm getting this a little bit out of order yeah. because the production company had called and said they wanted me to surprise Joe with something to kind of loosen us up because we were both like really well, stiff is, on this, camera. This is, this is amazing uh, okay. for viewers. Okay. Is you are great before an audience, oh, outgoing guy. Exactly. And on Terrified camera, you are a statue terrified and I mean the red dot the, I mean, the can... first day you, he they rolled in and this is mm. he hadn't bought the boat yet so he's thinking yeah what is even I'm... happening first yeah. day he rolls in uh, the cameras come in and chip just secretly like gets behind the camera guy and I'm sitting here going what are you doing like I'm not gonna carry this thing that's not my nature you're <laughs> the jokester he wouldn't have it. He anytime that red button came on, he would sweat <sighs> profusely. The world doesn't Nobody know that chip it. gains. They Nobody don't know the guy it. who can't speak. Oh, I was frozen. So all that to say, the first couple days we were just horrible, and I think they all knew it. Like this was a waste of money. These two are 
jokes. <laughs> and then nice they, they, yeah, exactly. they pulled us aside and said, hey. Separately. So separately. they take me one place, take her. They say, hey, we want you to surprise Chip. They say they want me to surprise you. And I'm thinking surprise, like, oh, we have a picnic. I didn't think, like, spend any money because, mind you, we were right in the middle of this thing with the development. So I'm sitting here every day going, are we going to make it financially? Like, are we, is today the end? Is tomorrow? So here are these camera crews come in, and Chip is now secretly looking at these houseboats to surprise us with money that we can't we don't have ten thousand dollars for a houseboat but he takes on as you know he's impulsive and when you challenge him he will take on that challenge oh, he I bought said, that house boy do i have a surprise for her she's gonna love this thing and they <laughs> capture all this and in my mind all i'm thinking is how much did he spend on this because that was money we probably need it you know so i'm freaking yeah. out and and they're capturing all of this and for whatever reason in that chaotic, horrible situation. It they saw some up. magic between us on how we resolved these problems. Tell them what the guy we... said on the way to the, the car when we're done, yeah. like after 30 minutes, <laughs> an hour of us evaluating you know, this. Chip was like, man, I'm sorry, that stunk, that was horrible. He I'm goes, talking to this producer. He said, no, 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 no. He said, if I do my job, you yeah. two just landed yourselves a reality television show, so. <laughs> just because of whatever little magic they felt like they captured on that on that houseboat thing. And that's thing. when it, it all fun. started, that's yeah. for the show. And you know, we always joke the first year, you know, we would have to say, hey, can you turn our mics off? We'd have to go answer these calls from all these people needing money. And I'm like, can they hear me, Chip? I'm like, hey, I'll get it to you Friday. I so we're in the midst of like filming for the pilot and, yeah. we're, and we're still juggling this whole- Negotiating payments. Are we gonna and, make it? Yeah. Yep. We had employees, bless their hearts. Some of hold them still with us that would hold their checks for weeks. And I mean, it was a real, you talk about a village, you know, it takes a village to, to raise a baby. Sometimes it takes a village to start a small business. And we had a lot of people come out of the woodwork to support so, us back uh, in those days. So as they say, the rest is history. Yeah. Uh, but uh, then you made the decision, you're gonna reopen the store. Yeah. Is again, that's the voice, which I always say is, is really one of those things where I feel like me and God have this thing where he, he um, he lets me in on things sometimes, and it feels it's like these secret sweet moments, um, I'd say for us. But um, it was in January of maybe 2014, and I felt like he said, it's time. Remember, you shut that down, and I told you it was coming back. It's time mm. to reopen. And I was sitting under a tree journaling that day, and we were in Phoenix, Arizona, of all places, getting a little break, just the two of us having a little time together. And I, I remember, remember that, Chip yeah. picked me up, and I said, Chip, uh, it's time to open up the store again. He's like, let's do it. So, um, one day I dropped the kids off and I was driving around the school and I just remember, again, I had that thing that I guess moms get where you're just like, I wanna be close to my kids even though they're in school now. And right behind the school were these right. two massive silos and this thing and I thought, I it, literally within that, um, I drove past it and I had this tug saying, go back, I want you to park and look at it. So I go back and I stare at it and it's like it all kinda got downloaded. I saw it, I mm. saw what the silos is today. I saw people, I saw families. Um, kind of this rebirth of something, yeah. you know, those silos had been there for a hundred years and I just had this thing that, in me. That uh, gets to something that's very interesting about real entrepreneurs. They look at something and see it with an entirely different mm. set of eyes no than doubt. other people do. And I was always that person. 
I was always that person. She was that person with the little shop on Bosky, mm-hmm. her first shop. I literally looked at it and was like, this place, this place is awful. I mean, I didn't see it reversal. at all. Yeah. Exactly. And then, you know, years of me picking and choosing, me picking and choosing, she's supporting me, she's supporting me. And then all of a sudden she sees these silos. We hammed it up a little bit on television just to, just for the fun and the drama of it. But, but I remember when she was sitting there explaining it to me, I, I didn't see it. But as you explained it, I saw it. Mm-hmm. You know, it was like this interesting, almost immediate thing. As you were describing it, I literally thought, where has this place been? Mm-hmm. I've driven by this place a thousand mm-hmm. times in the it's last like the decade. the first time we saw it. Yeah. It was kind of And as you described it, I was like, this is Joe's shop. Mm-hmm. This is her place. I mean, it wasn't even like there was a whole lot of debate. I mean, it was instant that I looked up going, how did I not yeah. see this thing? Um, parenting. You, you don't separate mm-hmm. personal business. Mm-hmm. It's all one mm-hmm. with you. But people, I think, need to learn what you learned in terms of with your kids. You describe how, I don't know whether it was a couch or something, you had a fine white cover, one of the kids <laughs> put the footprints on it. Then reaction was, why did I have something nice where the kids were going to get it? Right. But then you realized you don't have to be perfect. Mm-hmm. Don't try to be perfect. Talk mm-hmm. us about that mm-hmm. in this age of helicopter parenting. Yeah. That, uh, there's there's a lot to learn from what you discovered. That was, that was a pivotal time for me, I think, mm-hmm. as a mother, also as a designer, that it's, you know, I think so many times before when you don't, when you don't have, like you said, a mission or a, a passion in your heart, you just want to do something, but there's nothing there that's grounding you, you kind of reach for anything. So for me, I was wanting this perfect home, but for, for what? For people to say she has a perfect, you know, I didn't sure. know what was it, so I could be in a magazine. So it was just this fleeting thing. And then I realized it started affecting my kids. I would look at them and I'd think, well, where are they playing? And when they're playing, they're playing on my white couch and they're getting my white couch messy. And, hmm. you know, so I started realizing, man, what I'm creating is this like fake thing that no one feels at home here. Mm. Um, I feel great about myself in that moment, but then I also don't feel great about myself as a mom. So that was, so I think for me, it was getting to the heart of why, why do I do this? Why, what's the point? Why did I have the shop? Why, you know, with these babies, what, what am I trying to teach them? And I think when I got to the core of it, you know, that, that why was, was missing. And so for me now, it's creating these, you know, beautiful moments with these kids and mm. perfection, which used to be this thing I chased mm. because it's beautiful, it's hard to get, mm. it's something about it has. Other this, people will notice it and yeah, think something they, about us. What yeah. is that? Right. You know, um, that was really appealing to me. But in that moment, that kind of all fell off, and I was, I hated it. I thought mm. it was, you know, that is such a lie. And for me to chase that even for two years was such a waste. Um, mm. It felt empty. And so I finally started decorating. I finally started mothering out of this place of um, knowing my why, knowing why I'm here. I'm trying to help people in their homes. I want to help them allow their kids to thrive. I saw my kids not thriving in that moment. Well, what am I doing all this for? And so... For me, it's almost it was, like she packaged that idea of the why into a story. Mm-hmm. What is it about your story that makes you unique, yeah. and how do we highlight that yeah. either through design or parenting or whatever the deal might be? Just making sure that there's something deeper to our decisions other than just, I'm going to go get this, I'm going to do this, that there's always something a little deeper. And so when I tapped into that, I really got passionate about, I want to help other people. I want to help other moms in their home mm-hmm. so they don't feel this tug of, I want perfect, but I've got kids, and now I'm upset, and I'm, you know... Instead, it's like, hey, you can, you can. There can be pretty things. There can also be practical things, and I think that's kind of where I, where I thrive the most is helping people find that balance. In closing, partnerships. Do you uh, 
do it in business and you do it in a marriage. And you make the point, both of you, that uh, may not work for everyone. Mm -hmm. sure. But what can people take away mm -hmm. from your experiences, even if they don't work together in, in business? What, uh, what advice would you mm -hmm. give to uh, others? I think bottom line is, is, is there's an old adage that it's like you hurt the people that you love the most. And there's some odd truth to that. And for some reason, Joe and I, real early on in our marriage, we had some conflict and it was probably around not having any money or that little renovation that we were working on together. I don't remember the exact circumstances, but I remember pretty vividly as we were fighting against each other, trying to figure out whose fault it was that we were in this particular particular predicament, it became so clear to me that there was no net benefit to either one of us to constantly try to work things out in that way. Uh, we love each other, so we're going to hurt each other. We love each other, so we blame each other. And we kind of flipped that on its ear, and we were like, no matter what comes our way, it's you and me versus the world, essentially. So if there's a renovation that goes over budget, as opposed to us figuring out who bought the paint and why didn't the carpet happen exactly the way we thought, we thought we, we would come together and say, how is it that we're going to resolve this issue that we're in? And I remember that really vividly. And I mean, it was a, like an elephant on our shoulders with the development. I mean, hundreds of thousands of dollars and this is and that. There were so many ways that she and I could have turned on each other like a pack of coyotes and eaten each other for breakfast. But instead, we just kept coming back to the center and going, look, we've gotten here together. How is it that you and I are going to get ourselves out of this situation? And I would encourage couples that that's the, that's the secret to our success is just to pull, pull for one another. I mean, at the end of the day, Joe and I care about each other. We care about each other's hearts. We care about each other's souls. We care that each other are taken care of and, and are healthy and successful. And when you kind of put those fundamentals in place, it makes a lot of this other stuff feel a little less relevant. It, it's not the end of the world. If we've got money, it's she and I. If we don't have any money, it's she and I, you know, and so it, it makes things a little less life or death. Yeah, and it makes you know? us want to tackle big things, whether it be For a network sure. or a magazine mm, in yeah. an industry that it makes us go, hey, it's us against that. Let's try it. You sure. know, it's nothing ever looks too big when we're on the same side of something. So I think that's part of what makes us want to do some of the things that a lot of people say, hey, don't don't touch that with a 10 foot pole. We're like, hey, let's go do that. Yeah. And I think the other thing is respect. I think. We are so different, and I think in the beginning, we both wrestled with, man, you think differently. You don't right. know how to balance a checkbook. You had three businesses all wrapped into one, you know, all this <laughs> stuff. But what I had to do was go, but what is it about this guy? Where's the gold? What's the gold? His heart, he's got ideas. He's the most creative guy I know. All he needs is someone now to support him with all these ideas that can go, this is how we structure it. This is how we whatever. And for me, the, the way I'm introverted and all the things, it's almost like instead of saying, why are you like this? Or I want to change you. It's finding that that gold and who he is and saying Chip was created in this way and how can I support him? How can I help him rather than change him? I think early on we were like, how do we change each other so that it's more comfortable for me? <laughs> Where now it's like he is impulsive and I think that's the funniest thing and I love it. I'm never surprised anymore. I'm like, hey, if that if that does something to you, good. You know, I've had to learn to um, roll with it, have fun with it and also go, that's how he's wired. That's how he... He's an entrepreneur, you know, and so, of course, with that, you've got to be wily like that. You've got to be thinking on your feet. So, I don't know. I had to learn early on to, to love our differences, but now I look at it and go, thank God mm. he's like this. Like, Amen. 
who this guy is is to me the reason why I feel like I'm the most alive. He pushes me to the be, I think, the best that I can be. So one quick final thing in your obit that you wrote in, in, in your book, <laughs> sure. obituaries. There you go. She, you're going to be her vice president? I think so. <laughs> I think there's a chance, man. The first, what was it, half Korean uh, president, president of the United States. Come on, man. I let's do it. how they've aged. I can't do that. <laughs> we would pop out of that looking about 100 oh. years old, wouldn't we? Everyone jokes about that with the network. They'll say like pre-network, Chip uh, and exactly. Joe, after network. We, we will have aged Hey, if we bit. can, if we can make this, uh, if we can uh, make this uh, network bend to our wills and wishes maybe uh maybe the presidency is the uh, the next thing <laughs> for joanna stevens Gaines. Uh, thank you very much thank awesome you. what this an honor fun. steve thank no, you for thank having you. us thank you thank you for right. the time very inspiring I, it, it's really uh fun questions wonderful. absolutely you did a great job yeah. it's always fun to go back because you're like you know sometimes you Gosh, gotta reflect i know yeah. thank you those were really great i got a little teary out a few of those those moments man i forgot i you uh conveniently forget about some of those rough days for sure thanks for listening to what's ahead i'm steve forbes looking forward to next week and if you could rate review and subscribe to this show we at forbes sure would appreciate it